Matthew 6, it says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. Well, good morning. As Aaron said, uh, my name is Zach, and my beautiful wife, Jade, is back there with our uh, soon-to-be-tomorrow six-week-old son uh, named Paxton. And uh, I have basically been known as Jade's husband for uh, five years now. Now I'm also known as Paxton's dad, and I'm not mad about it. So, um, yeah, as Aaron said, uh, we're uh, embedded church planners here, been uh, working as a pastor for about 10 years, and uh, as we felt the call of God to church plant, um, we recognized in our just kind of own hearts and lives that we needed both to, to heal from some things in ministry and then also uh, learn kind of a, a different mode of ministry, one marked uh, by the values here, really, uh, of stillness, simplicity, in the spirit. And, uh, and so uh, our lead pastors here, Dan and Alexis, were gracious enough to welcome us in, and we've been able to really become a part of this beautiful community. And uh, Dan and Alexis are actually in Seattle uh, this week, uh, ministering at a church up there that supported this church plant. And uh, crazy enough, he trusts me to do this today. So uh, if I say anything that you don't like, take it up with him. Uh, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Um, but yeah, with that, very excited, uh, open up to Matthew chapter uh, 6 today, and I'd like to begin our time in the scriptures this morning uh, by telling you a story. Is that all right? All right, I'm going to do it anyway. So, uh, And it's a story that I think is going to, to frame for us like what it is that we're looking at today in this ninth phrase of the Our Father that we just read together. This is arguably one of the most famous prayers in all of the scriptures, and it's the source of our collective meditation that we've been walking through this fall as the church is leaning into this practice of prayer. All right, and so in 2011, uh, I found myself walking along the side of the 215 freeway in Paris, California. Uh, I had recently, uh, up until that point, uh, for five years, been heavily uh, in the world of drugs and alcohol and partying, basically just kind of uh, swimming in the world of snowboarding and trying to spend my life just getting wasted and um, pursuing fun times. And up until that point, uh, I had you know been rebelling against Jesus, stepped into this Christian alcohol uh, and drug rehabilitation program that was there in Paris. And again, my life just weeks before had been so, so, so different. I mean, long red knotted hair with like beads and feathers in my hair, tie-dye shirts, like was camping in a, in a hippie commune in the woods just so that I could snowboard during the summers uh, up at Mount Hood in Northern Oregon. It was a sight to see. I look very, very, very different today, but this was 12 years ago, all right? And I had repented, surrendered my life to Jesus, 
and was pursuing him in his kingdom. And this was a new start, literally like in every sense of the word. Here I found myself in a program that we basically called Jesus Jail. Um, that's really what it was like. And just 24 hours a day being surrounded uh, with the scriptures and with Bible study and with church and really trying to learn what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus and overcoming this, this problem of addiction that we collectively had in this ministry. And so during a, a cleanup task on the side of the highway that day in 2011, uh, I came across a glass pipe and later found a container uh, with a relatively significant amount of marijuana. Uh, by my estimation, as someone who had, up to that point had studied to be a street pharmacist, um, I'm guessing uh, that it was about 150 US dollars, um, according to the then semi-legal marijuana market of Southern California in 2011. Uh, so we're talking about a lot of weed uh, for someone who's in rehab, right? And mind you, had just walked up and found a pipe and now I'm sitting there with all of this weed in a nug jug. I don't know if I could say that stuff in church, but we're here. <laughs> Listen, I was, the, I was the type of person who always found a way to get high just weeks before. It didn't matter what it cost me. It didn't matter who it hurt. I always found a way. And while everything in my life had changed, apparently this thing had not changed. Because here I was in rehab, standing there with a pipe and weed, the, what I needed to get high and burn a few down and enjoy picking up trash on the side of the freeway a lot more. And this is what brings us to our text this morning. This ninth phrase in the Our Father that we're gonna meditate collectively on together today is lead us not into temptation. Would you pray with me once more as we seek God together in his word as a community this morning? I'm gonna invite you to take a, a deep breath with me in and out. Father in heaven, as we gather this morning, we recognize that, that our local expression of worship is a part of a, a larger movement of Christian brothers and sisters all over the world. And we recognize that, that we're a part of, a, of an ancient, multicultural, multi-ethnic movement. There's something so much bigger than what's happening right here in this moment. You have been working in and through your church for nearly two millennia. You're doing so much all over the world, but Lord, you are also working right here in our midst. And God, we pray here this morning uh, that you would work to restore and renew our hearts, our minds, our souls through uh, our, our time in the scriptures this morning. And God, we ask that you would make your presence known to us as we study the scriptures and want to preach and teach in a way that honors you and honors your word. We commit our time to you this morning. It is in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. There is much that could be said about this section of the Our Father. Uh, we are focusing our attention on a, a very difficult text. It's a, it's a text that good and godly Christians uh, throughout the ages, including our age that we're in of church history, uh, they, they've disagreed. Good and godly Christians see this very, very differently. And uh, I work full-time right now as an undergraduate professor of biblical studies. Actually, I have some of my students back here. What's up, guys? Um, they're here trying to smooth some extra credit. Um, just kidding. They're awesome. But I'm, a, I'm an undergraduate professor of biblical studies, which basically means I'm a certifiable Bible nerd. Um, and so for me, like, I'm tempted just to dive right into the fray of the theological and, like, linguistic studies that are going on, the debates that are happening within the 
this text, right? My my predilection is to start presenting to you the landscape of the debates and tell you about the theological terms and the linguistic terms, what's happening in the Greek, all so that I can winsomely convince you to see this passage the way that I do. But I'm gonna resist. You're welcome. This morning, my, my aim is actually much more pastoral. It's much more simpler. All right, I wanna center and focus our time on prayer and what this phrase about temptation means for us, again, as a community and as individuals, as we pray. Because we, as, as late modern Westerners, trying to follow the ancient way of Jesus in the midst of rising pluralism and secularism and American consumerism, we are being barraged constantly with this temptation to be unfaithful to Jesus and the ethic of his kingdom. Again, both individually and also collectively. Temptation is simply a part of apprenticing under Jesus. J.C. Ryle, an English Anglican bishop in the 19th century, once wrote regarding the temptation narratives of Jesus, we must not count temptation a strange thing. The disciple is not greater than his master, nor the servant than his Lord. If temptation came to Christ, it will also come to Christians. My prayer for us this morning, as we focus our time collectively, like meditating on prayer and what this phrase about temptation means for us, is that we would be armed with knowledge that would actually influence the way that we pray, believing that God's spirit will bring us into victory. That's my hope and my prayer this morning. We would be armed with knowledge that would influence the way that we pray, believing that God is going to bring us into victory over these things in our life and in our communities and our culture that are drawing us away from faithfulness to Christ. That's the trajectory that we're stepping on this morning. If you're down, say you're down. Okay, if your neighbor didn't say anything, look at him and just elbow him. Be like, why are you here? I'm just joking. Listen, to accomplish this, I wanna give you uh, my simple like working thesis for this text, all right, for this ninth phrase in the Our Father. What's happening in this text, I believe, is as we're praying this, the, these words that Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. This is the first phrase in Matthew 6, 13. Jesus is inviting us to claim three distinct truths about ourselves and about our community. Packed within this little six-word phrase are the following proclamations. And this will be the roadmap for our time together this morning. We are not equipped to lead ourselves. That's the first thing that we're claiming in this prayer. The second is that we are not immune from testing. And the third is that we will not be overcome by temptation. And I'd like to, again, spend the remainder of our time together talking about these three things this morning from our text. The first truth that we should have in our minds as we pray is absolutely vital and yet is so often overlooked. Lead us, Jesus says in this section of the Our Father. What are the two words? Say it with me. Lead us. Again, these words are so easy to overlook as they're overshadowed by this word temptation. But these first words are incredibly powerful and hold a lot of weight for us. In praying these words, we are confessing to the Lord, we are not equipped to lead ourselves. It is what we are bringing forth in our prayer to the Lord. These, act, these, these prayers are, these words are an act of submission, they are an act of confession. And they are also an affront to our modern Western sensibilities. 
In his book, uh, A Secular Age, philosopher Charles Taylor describes how the collective mindset of Western culture has shifted from living our lives according to external authority structures like God, the scriptures, tradition, our family, parents, and it shifted to living one's life according to the desire of our authentic self. Phrases like, you do you, or speak your truth, or the heart wants what it wants, right? These are, these are indicative of where our culture has gone. It has moved, Western culture has moved from placing a premium on authority and has become infatuated with the expression of authenticity. Do you, bro, is the mantra of our day. This is the air that you and I breathe as late modern Westerners. It's in the very water that we drink. But authenticity is only one side of the coin. That is secularism in the West, where we find ourselves living. Hear me in this. Authenticity relates to the genuine expression of one's beliefs and values. And autonomy, the other side of this coin of secularism that we live in, on the other hand, refers to the individual's right to self-governance and to, and to the freedom to make choices based on their own rationality and personal values. And I know that that's a lot, but, but understand the world that you and I dwell in places a premium on these two things, authenticity, being true to yourself and your desires, and autonomy, choosing when and where you will get what you want. This is the world that we live in. The stream of these cultural narratives that we unconsciously drink from tell us that we are autonomous beings who fundamentally deserve the right to our own agency to choose what our life is going to be, how we act, who we're with, and what it is that we do. The former first lady of the United States, Michelle Obama, actually once claimed that the American dream is not owning a home. And I'm glad she admitted that because in San Diego, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> she says it's not owning a home or achieving material success. It is about the freedom to be who you are, to think for yourself, and to live life on your own terms. Autonomy and authenticity are at the very heart of our culture today. See, but Jesus, ever the, the countercultural sage, he invites us to pray in this phrase, Heavenly Father, lead us. Just sit with that for just a moment and realize how Jesus is pushing against this cultural stream that we unconsciously drink from. For me, this takes my mind immediately back to the garden on the first pages of the Bible where the story begins. You see, the, the creator God had created a good world, and he had charged these image-bearing humans to partner with him in ruling over it, cultivating it, and carrying on this project of creation, unpacking its potential that he had placed within it. God desired for a beautiful world where the raw energy and resources of creation would be harnessed to cultivate human flourishing and the spreading of his loving reign as king. He wanted a human civilization that was marked by love and justice, compassion, beauty, art, coffee, reggae music, IPAs, and surfing. I'm absolutely convinced that God envisioned the pinnacle of human civilization as life on the coast in modern-day San Diego. While I, while I joke, and all those things are great, I'm fully convinced, to be serious, 
that a world marked by love and justice, compassion, beauty, truth, fairness, creativity was actually in reach of these first humans if they would only trust God's definition of good and evil. If they would only partner with him as the loving king who had shared his authority with them and desired to define what it is that they should give themselves to and what it is that they should abstain from. This choice represented in the narrative by the tree that is called the knowledge of good and evil was the test that was failed by Adam and Eve. And the result of this failing was the rupturing of the beautiful relationship and partnership that God desired with these humans and the fading away of the beautiful world that God intended for them. His way, hear me, had been abandoned for the cheap imitation of life and beauty and love that the humans could conjure up on their own by defining good and evil for themselves. Humans have seized autonomy and have chosen to rule over creation to build a world apart from the leading of the king himself and ignoring his definition of what is good and evil. In their video from the Bible Project on uh, the story of the Bible, heaven and earth, they actually use this really, this image that, that a lot of people had a problem with, but I actually really like it. They depict Adam and Eve as effectively giving the middle finger to God when they choose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because what they're effectively doing was saying, we do not need you to rule over us. We will rule over this place on our own. Beat it. Down through the ages, each civilization that has come has perpetuated this cycle of defining good and evil for themselves. And they have aided in the creation of a world where love is undermined by hate, where justice is corrupted by inequity, where compassion is sullied by self-centeredness, and where beauty is tainted by the curse, where truth is obscured by lies. This is the work of our hands. This is what we have done as humans, made in God's image, who have effectively given the middle finger to God and have defined good and evil for ourselves. And please don't hear me wrong. This has not only taken place at a societal, kind of civilizational level. You and I are each, every single one of us, also guilty of this same sin. Following in the way of our father Adam, we have been tempted to define good and evil for ourselves rather than trusting Yahweh's definition of good and evil. This cultural premium that is placed upon autonomy and authenticity, it scoffs at the concept of external authority structures like God or the scriptures or tradition or family that defines good and evil for us that we must willingly submit to. And this takes a couple forms for us, this this scoffing, right? We can look at this as some kind of uh, antiquated medieval concept that we've cast off during the Enlightenment and the rise of the modern self, or perhaps maybe the reason why we struggle as a society and as individuals to submit to external authority is due more to the abuse of power that we've experienced at the hands of those who had it very real sense of fear and anxiety and anger and resentment, the shattered sense of trust in others, the shame and the guilt that result from abuse. They tell us at a neurological and physiological level that authority is inherently bad. This is the, this is the reality of the world that we live in where we have defined good and evil for ourselves. So we reject this construct of authority. We seize autonomy as an act of self-preservation. But the fact is, is that we are all submitting to some kind of authority in our life. The question is whether this authority represents goodness 
or malevolence. This is why we must remind ourselves as we step into this prayer what Jesus is inviting us to pray. He is asking us to come to the Father and to request to be led. In this simple two-word statement, we are confessing our inability and our innate lack of understanding of what is good and evil and submitting to a good Father. The choice presented to the first humans in the Bible, symbolized by a tree in the garden, recurs again and again like a symphony throughout the entire narrative of the Scriptures. Time and time again in the Bible's pages, humans choose autonomy, they define good and evil for themselves, they result, the result is destruction, ruptured relationship, and further exile from God's ideal for humans in the garden. Everyone in the narrative of the Bible is facing the same tree. It just takes different forms. They are standing shoulder to shoulder as you and I are today with Adam and Eve facing the tree. The prophet Ezekiel, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, foretold of a day, though, where God would place his spirit within the heart of his people and that this would animate them into covenant faithfulness and fidelity to his commands, right, to his precepts, to his laws, to, listen to me, his definition of what is good and evil. This is what Ezekiel saw as a future day when Jesus the Messiah would come, that God's people would face the tree successfully and break the cycle of rebellion. The reality that the new covenant offers to you and I as followers of Jesus today is the regenerating work of of birth in the Spirit of God. Rebirth, regeneration, this renewing of our hearts when we confess, when we repent, and when we give our allegiance to Jesus as king. The word allegiance is what we're claiming and offering to God when we follow Jesus' instructions to pray, lead us. We say that word with me, allegiance. As followers of Jesus, listen to me, as followers of Jesus, if you claim today to be an apprentice, a follower of Jesus, you've committed your life to him, we reject the allure of autonomy for the safety and the worshipful act of giving our allegiance to King Jesus. For us as followers of Jesus, it is allegiance over autonomy. This is what we have signed up for in giving our life to Jesus as King. There is a lot of work being done in the world of biblical scholarship right now around this concept of allegiance. And at the, at the vanguard of this work is a professor, a, a biblical scholar named Dr. Matthew Bates, who's a professor of theology at Quincy University. And he wrote this incredible book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone, really recommend it. But Dr. Bates in this book compellingly argues that in the ancient Greek word uh, for, for faith, that's it's pistis, that's usually how it's translated in the Bible, it's used hundreds of times. This word pistis, translated as faith, carries more of a connotation of allegiance rather than just belief or trust. Listen to what Dr. Bates says. He says, with regard to eternal salvation, rather than speaking of belief, trust, and faith in Jesus, we should speak instead to fidelity to Jesus as cosmic Lord or allegiance to Jesus as King. Listen, this is the starting point for us who pray and take seriously the words of Jesus in this section of the Our Father. Here's what we're praying. 
We are praying, Lord, we humble ourselves and we recognize that we are not equipped to lead ourselves. We need to be led. We need you, our crucified, buried, and resurrected and enthroned king to define what is good for us and what is evil because we, as the human race and as individuals, have brought havoc, destruction, brokenness into your good world. We face the same tree that Adam and Eve faced, and we look at it in the looming shadow of the tree that you hung upon on Calvary's Hill. And in response, we crucify our longing for autonomy. You, our king, have our allegiance, and we will follow you where we lead. Amen. That is what we are praying when we say these first two words. What were they again? Lead us. We are choosing our allegiance to King Jesus over our autonomous selves, choosing to allow him to define what is good and evil for us. Imagine a, a life, a community, a city, a worldwide movement of apprentices of Jesus who prayed this prayer and meant it. And I already know that there are some here this morning who, who are bothered by the fact that God gave this choice to Adam and Eve in the first place. I've been teaching the Bible long enough. I've been walking students through the early pages of Genesis in classroom settings long enough to know that this bothers people, and that's fine. The, the fact that God gives this tree option, this, this choice to the humans, feels like a test. And the bad news that I have for you this morning is actually that by praying this phrase, one of the things that you're admitting is that you're not immune from testing. And I understand that this word feels like a dirty word in our like collective psyche, right? Like you hear tests and immediately your mind is filled with images of imperceptible study guides, flashcards, scantrons, and number two pencils. Like I get it, right? Like we've all had that moment of just rising crippling anxiety when we have three C's in a row and then we know that number four is actually a C too and we sit there and we say there's no possible way. There's just no possible way that there's four. All right, listen, as a professor who like writes exams, I actually do that on purpose and I sit back and I watch it. It's really fun. Uh, <laughs> a little cruel. Right, so like when we think test, like that's what comes into our collective psyche, right? Like we start to even have this like feeling of anxiety that rises because we, we kind of have this, this grimace on our mind when we think of this word because we envision it as a trap. We look at tests as something that are meant to punish us or to set us up for failure. Tests, in our mind, are cruel because of our experience. In the video of the test by the Bible Project, John raises a question about the tree in the garden and whether it was cruel for God to test people. Tim, who's the, the Hebrew Bible scholar, the theological mind behind the videos that the Bible Project puts out, he, he actually claims that not all tests are negative. Stick with me here. He uses the analogy that a king choosing someone to fulfill a noble task is actually meant to, to assess their trustworthiness and their loyalty to that king. And so John acknowledges in the video, hey, this test sounds like an opportunity, Tim highlights, though, that if a rebel tries to convince someone to, follow, to not follow the king's instruction, then it becomes a trap. Are you following me? The difference lies between whether one, the one testing has the person's best interest in mind. 
in this fictitious story that they tell in the, in, in, in the video, it is a good king who is testing the loyalty and the faithfulness of his subjects. But the rebel is trying to derail and bring death. It is a trap. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, hear me, and I hope this, this just sets you free, is not a temptation to sin. It is a test to prove loyalty. Again, it is not a temptation to sin. It is a test to prove loyalty. Tests are a good opportunity from a loving father who wants the best for his children, while temptation is a trap designed to derail and destroy. James, a biblical author who wrote just years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, he claimed unmistakably, when we are tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anybody. I mean, James is so incredibly clear, and we need to, to interpret what's happening in Genesis chapters two and three through the lens of this unmistakable truth that God does not tempt anybody. James's point and the thrust of the entire biblical narrative as a whole is that the temptation for a human to seize autonomy from God and define good and evil on their own is itself presented by the wild story in Genesis chapter 3 of a talking snake in the garden. The test is presented by a loving God who desires to share his rule, his reign, his authority with the humans that he has made in his image. And the temptation finds its genesis, its origin, in the presence of the serpent, this personification of evil in the garden. Are you with me? Do you see the difference of what is happening here? As far as this personification of evil, the serpent in the garden, stay tuned to this channel. Dan's gonna take us on a meditation through that next week. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be rad. You should be here. All right, but as for our purposes today... I wanna draw your mind back to my story from the beginning of our time together. I don't think it's a stretch to say that as I stood there on the side of the 215 freeway with a pipe and a significant amount of weed in my hand, that I was actually, in fact, facing the same tree as Adam and Eve. This was a test for me. This was a divine opportunity to do something noble and to prove my trustworthiness and my allegiance to my king that I had given my life to. And simultaneously, it was also a temptation from the rebel who hates me and my king. Like I said, I was facing the tree alongside Adam and Eve. At that moment, I was standing in front of the tree that every single human has had to face. The biographers of Jesus in the New Testament picture him as a new Adam who is reigniting the story of the cosmos. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel accounts all describe how Jesus spent 40 days fasting in the, the, the deserts of ancient Judea. This, this, this desert follow me, is, is the antithesis of a garden which symbolized humanity's exile from Eden where they were able to eat abundantly from any tree. And Jesus is there fasting, doing the exact opposite. During the time that he was tempted by the devil, this new Adam faced the same tree and was tempted by the same serpent. But unlike the first Adam, Jesus punched Satan in the face, went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil, and emerged victorious. 
The temptation of the serpent that Jesus, the second Adam, faces is threefold, all right? Stick with me. It's latent with subtlety and manipulation. We'll go through very quickly. The first temptation that involved, for, for Jesus, the devil suggesting that he turned stones into bread to satiate his hunger. I just told you what Jesus was doing out there for 40 days. What was he doing? He was fasting. And so the temptation is turn these stones into bread. The Greek actually implies chipotle burritos, but bread is a fine translation as well, okay? In the second temptation, the devil showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and promised to give him authority if he would just fall down and worship him. The temptation here was to, to, to grab hold of what was rightfully his, all the nations of the world, to reign as king, but without experiencing the agony of the cross. And the devil, in the final temptation, challenged Jesus to throw himself down, suggesting that the angels would come and save him and prove his importance and his prominence as Yahweh's Messiah. Three temptations. Three times the second Adam, Jesus, faces off with the serpent, and each time Jesus responds with a quote from the scriptures to fend off the attack. He doesn't budge an inch. Jesus was born to pass this test. You see, the reality that you and I are, pray, are proclaiming when we pray these words that Jesus is inviting us to pray in this section of the Our Father, lead us not into temptation. What we are praying is, Lord, we first humbly recognize the presence and power of temptation. We recognize the serpent as a rebel who hates us and you. He undermines your desire for the world our community, and for our lives as individuals. We look to you embodied in the flesh as Jesus of Nazareth and the desert wilderness of ancient Judea. We stand upon your victory as the second Adam who withstood the temptation of the serpent. Secondly, Lord, we recognize that in your sovereign control over the world, you lead us into moments of testing to give us the ability to prove our loyalty, allegiance, and faithfulness to you and your kingdom. You do not tempt us to sin, for you are a good and loving father who wants the best for his children. Help us see these tests as opportunities. Amen. This is what Jesus is inviting us into by praying this simple phrase. Lord, we need to be led. And Lord, in these time in being led by you, we will step into times of difficulty where we are both tempted and tested. And how we choose to respond to that is really going to come through the lens that we choose to look at it through. An opportunity to do something noble and prove our loyalty and allegiance to our king, or a temptation from a rebel looking to, to derail and destroy us. As we come to the close of our time and nearing the, the time where we'll come to the bread and the cup together. I know that <laughs> there's a, a looming question in a lot of minds right now of like, what is it that I did that day walking on the side of the 215 freeway? To answer that, let me give you the final proclamation uh, that I believe we're making when we pray this second to last phrase in the Our Father, lead us not into temptation. Here's what we're proclaiming over ourselves is we will not be overcome by temptation. On that hot summer day in September of 2011, when I was facing off with this visceral and real temptation, like the most real temptation probably to date that I had ever gone through, I actually had a small passage of scripture that jolted into my mind. 
I had memorized this passage uh, just a few weeks before this moment as a part of the formation protocols uh, that happened within this Christian discipleship drug and alcohol rehabilitation program. Each week we were given a verse and we would memorize that verse and we would write a small reflection on that verse. And so that moment as I'm holding a pipe and a bunch of weed in both of my hands, what came into my mind that moment was this passage of scripture. No temptation has overtaken you except is what is common to man. But God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And with that temptation will also be made the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In step with Jesus fending off the temptation from the serpent in the wilderness, my immediate response was actually to look to God's word. Because mind you, I was in rehab and they were like beating these verses into our mind. Remember, Jesus jail, I, I kid you not. Bible boot camp is the other way that we referred to it as well. In this moment, thankfully, I, I actually chose rather than, than to, to feed into the primal desires of my sinful nature, I, I, what the Apostle Paul actually refers to as the flesh, what I chose to do, and thankfully, was, was to not give in to the deceitful lies of the enemy that actually were telling me that this was innocuous and that this was something that wasn't going to be bad for me, that I actually deserved because of all the work I had done in getting over the drugs that I had been committed to. I actually aimed in this moment to trust God at his word, and it is one of the best decisions that I ever made. And listen, I just want to be very clear. I'm no hero. I haven't shaped this sermon around this story so that you could see like how strong I am, right? I'm actually gravely aware of how many flaws and how many weaknesses I have. My purpose in telling you this story is to provide you with a demonstrative understanding and an example of what facing temptation can look like in a life. What it can look like for you and I moving forward as we pursue Jesus together in San Diego to see God's kingdom come here as it is in heaven. What can go down as you and I as individuals and as a community face toe-to-toe -to -toe with the enemy? To be perfectly candid with you, I actually struggled in that moment on the side of the freeway. Even after quoting Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10. Listen, I, I debated, I wavered. I rationalized to myself why it was okay. Listen, I, I wanted to get high. I hated picking up trash on the side of the freeway. I was facing the tree. Give in to my disordered desires at the behest of the, the, the deceitful lies that I was being presented or trust God at his word and show my allegiance and my loyalty to him by being obedient to where I was and where he had placed me. The choice was honestly pretty simple. Lean into the test or give in to the temptation. Again, to, to just clearly provide an answer to you. I have been sober for 12 years and three months. And I haven't used since six days before entering rehab. That moment, standing on the side of the freeway with a pipe and with some weed. And I know someone in here is like, but you didn't have a lighter, bro. Listen. Okay. <laughs> Listen. I, I understand that part of the story. It was in the notes. Dan told me to cut it out because it was too long. But I'm giving it to you anyway because I'm here. He's not. Okay. 
Dan, you're listening to this on the podcast. Love you, man. Thank you. But listen, there, there, there's a part of the story that, that's really crucial because I was actually in charge of the recyclables. See, I was the trustworthy trash picker-upper, right? So I'm walking faster than everyone else because there's way less recyclables. All my trash-picking compatriots are like 100 yards behind me. And there was kind of this like little black market economy that was going on in the underground of U-Turn for Christ, right? This little ministry that I was in. And I wasn't a part of it, but I'm perceptive enough to know what was happening. And I know that there was a dude who was about 100 yards away who was walking up to me with three cigarettes and a lighter, right? So like that moment right there, I was like, we're getting high on the side of the freeway, all right? And like, I just feel like that's important for you to understand how visceral, how overpowering this moment of temptation felt for me. I literally had everything that I needed, the choice before me, lean into the test or give in to the temptation. The Apostle Paul's words from 1 Corinthians, that verse that I quoted and showed you a moment ago, that emboldened me to see the situation that I found myself in as an opportunity, listen, were these words. I'm gonna put these back on the screen for you. When you are tempted, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, he, that being God, will provide a way, what? Out. <laughs> so that you can endure it. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The way out is choosing to trust our good Father. It is deciding then and there as we face the tree in the same manner as Adam and Eve and every human that has gone before us to allow God to define what is good and evil rather than seizing autonomy from him and defining it for ourselves. Now there are two differences as we close between us and the first humans in the story of the Bible. Here's the first. Is that Jesus has gone ahead of us to pass the test on our behalf. Jesus has given his spirit to us to empower us now through the animating work of the spirit of God to follow in his lead, the one who passed the test on our behalf. Amen. Like that's the one, that's the first difference between us and Adam and Eve. And the second difference is that Jesus has also taken the penalty of the failed test upon himself. When he hung upon the cross of Calvary and dealt with the shame and the guilt that you and I feel when we are not victorious over temptation. These are the glorious truths that we are proclaiming over ourselves and over our community when we pray to our Father, lead us not into temptation. To elaborate on this a little bit more as we close, I invite the worship team up as we finish with this last prayer written out here of what we're praying in this phrase. And even as we do this, I just wanna invite you to stand with me. And we'll make this our, our closing prayer as we read it together from the screen. When we pray, Lead us not into temptation. What we are praying is, Lord, we confess our weakness and inability to overcome temptation on our own. The tree, to be quite honest, Lord, terrifies us because it reveals the wickedness of our disordered desires and the deceitful lies that we have believed about ourselves, the world, and what will truly make us happy. You know us. And on the cross, you took the guilt and the shame that rightly belongs to us upon yourself. Thank you, Jesus, 
that as the author of Hebrews writes, you are our high priest, and that you, like us, were tempted as we are, but yet emerged victorious. We believe that not only did you defeat the serpent in the wilderness, but you crushed his head at the cross and through your resurrection. We stand upon your victory and rely upon your empowering presence available to us in the Holy Spirit to overcome. Lead us, we ask, not into temptation. Amen? Amen. Let's spend a few moments worshiping together, reflecting, meditating upon what it is that we're praying in this phrase, lead us not into temptation. Lord, would you be even just present to us in this moment? God, as we turn our focus from, from the scriptures to, uh, Lord, leaning into this time of, of response, of, of bringing to you what it is that you have deposited into our hearts. Lord, be present to us in this moment as we honor and glorify your name through song. In Jesus' name we pray.